0: Uh, James chapter 5 we're going to see in James chapter 5 we're going to move verses 1 through 6 in James chapter 5 I'm going to entitle this particular lesson too much stuff and so all of us are going to go home with sore toes including the preacher because that's just the way we are uh, in America and uh, I'll make some very personal applications of that here in just a moment Chapter 5 verse 1, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up in these last days, behold, uh, the wages of the labors uh, uh, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's kind of in your face. It's pretty graphic. It's not like James was trying to make friends and win- influence people here. Uh, the Dale Carnegie approach uh, it, it, that you uh, we've often heard of in the past, uh, he just basically saying what has to be said. And that is, you got too much stuff, you're a bunch of rich folks, and in the process of c- accumulating all this gluttonous, materialistic wealth that you got, you have wronged other people. And you need to recognize and repent of it. And that's pretty harsh, but it's Accurate, evidently of his time and I think probably more accurate of our time. I was looking in social media because I do so much of my ministry through social media. I was looking in social media the other day and came across a, a meme of a, of a little boy. I don't know where he's from, but I suspect it's probably somewhere in, in Africa, maybe even Uganda, uh, where I've got a very dear friend. Uh, but he was lapping up like a dog would lap up water. In an old muddy stream that looked like it was just a ditch and uh, it was definitely water you and i would not even want to wash our hands in but he was thirsty and he was drinking that water and i don't recall exactly what the caption was but it had something to do with the idea of god forgive me when i'm unthankful for what i have this morning several times i can't tell you the number because i don't even think about it but several times i went to the faucet and I washed my hands, I brushed my teeth, I got in the shower, I uh, drank some water, I just, it's just there, I don't even think about it. Uh, We got a good well, and uh, it's never failed to get us water unless I failed to, in the wintertime, make sure that the pipes are unfrozen, that that has happened, but that's not the well's fault. Uh, You know, I I got good water, it's always there, I'm ready to drink, uh, and I just don't even think about it, until one of those winter nights, when it freezes up and I get up in the middle of the night wanting to wash my hands and there's no water and here it is at 2 a.m. and I'm panicky because I'm thinking to myself you know I've got Cindy's dad and lives with us and I got my mom and dad are on the same water system as I am the well and you know it's froze up in the middle of the night now what am I going to do and it's so odd to go to the faucet and to turn that little knob and nothing comes we take so much for granted don't we I'm thinking of my friend, Bisethu. He lives in Uganda. He is probably watching right now. And uh, he just moments ago, as we were coming here, he sent me a text message there several, earlier, uh, several hours different than we are, so they've already had their Sunday services. But uh, today there was a baptism. They had to walk three kilometers to get to water, but they baptized a woman today, and I've got pictures of, of him going down into the water and baptizing her, and she is now part of the family of god and i'm saying hallelujah and i'm praising god for that event but my buddy bisethu who cindy and i support through the restoration school of biblical studies my my buddy bisethu has told me recently of the the persecution that is happening as long as they stay inside the big city they seem to be okay but his ministry is to those in the villages around about and men are being carried away by individuals who are raiding the villages and women are being carried away and children are being carried away. And yet Bisathu continues to go there because he recognizes the need and he wants to serve. I'm going to give you a little personal here, but my boys are working really hard to make sure they got their passports in order. And I'm working hard to get my passport in order so that at some point in 2024, I can travel to Nairobi, Kenya and I've already arranged with my buddy bisithu that if we can raise the money, I'm going to pay for bisithu to come south from Uganda to meet with us in Nairobi and Kenya so that we can have time to love on him. He works in a difficult situation. The water's unclean, the setting is unsafe, and yet he goes. And I have so much admiration for this guy. And then there's Sonny Childs who gets in an air-conditioned vehicle and he travels here on Sunday morning to sit in an air-conditioned room looking at very pleasant faces who don't want to do me harm, has no, not even the beginning of a a worry that there's going to be a threat to me as I present the gospel, etc. And I consider the contrast and I recognize how rich I am. May I go back and read again verse 1? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I'm not suggesting that you and I in America are wrong for having air conditioning or cars that transport us. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong for you and I to live in safety. But I am suggesting this, we in the church today have for too long taken for granted what we have. And we have heaped upon ourselves luxuries, and conveniences that if we would sacrifice just a few of them, we could put many more missionaries on the field. We could support many more men like my buddy Bisethu or my friend in Kenya named Danis or another friend who Cindy and I support through our ministry who's named Peter in India who live in difficult scenarios. Imagine what would happen if the church would downsize from its materialistic gluttony and actually put our spiritual values in action toward those who really have needs. I can't get that image out of my mind of the little boy as he laps up water from that dark brown pool in the ditch when I can go to my faucet and get clean, clear water anytime I want. I truly am rich. I truly am advantaged and i truly and i suggest to you and everybody watching this out there who's especially in america in the in the american church i challenge you we need to downsize we need to get back to putting our money in places that it really counts now let's go to the passage he says as you move into verse 3 your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire that's pretty graphic Then he makes this point. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You and I are living in the last days just as they were living in the last days then. That is a phrase that is used quite often in the New Testament to recognize that there's nothing really left except the return of the Lord. These are the last days. And even though it's 2,000 plus years since Jesus uh, went back to heaven, from that moment on we have been living in the last days and these are it. If they were living in the last days, and you and I are 2,000 years into that period of time, you and I are most certainly living more closely to the time that Jesus will return than they ever were. I believe that we're living in the last of the last days. As I see literally Sodom, Gomorrah kind of context happening within America today, and we are supposedly the flagship of righteousness in the world. And if we're that pitiful, and the rest of the world is worse than that, I ask how much longer can God tarry? How much longer can he be patient? I I certainly cannot predict it, but I think we are living in the last of the last days, which makes this statement, I think, even more poignant to you and I. If we're living in the last of the last days, why in the world would folks in the last of the last days be hanging on so tightly to those things that are gonna perish, that are not going to be here once you've passed on or the Lord returns? Why wouldn't we reinvest? Cindy and I have just recently been under heavy conviction with regards to this. Finances are tight with regards to our ministry, and we try to raise money so that we can support these three fellas who are in Uganda and Kenya and in India, and it, it, it's just hard. And so we started, we got it's, all, it's, it's on my bathroom mirror. Come to the house, I'll show you. There's a list of about 12 things we've got on my bathroom mirror that we're fixing to sell. So you be watching on Facebook Marketplace, we're fixing to sell some stuff. And I'll tell you why. Did not do me any good. There's a grinder. I'm fixing to put a grinder on Facebook marketplace. It's a nice little stand. I haven't used the thing. Never used the thing. And there it sits. Why in the world do I have this kind of stuff clogging up my system when I could use that money to support missionaries like I've just talked about or to take care of our ministry like we're trying to be involved in? We need to downsize because i believe that when he says you have laid up treasure in the last days he's talking largely to you and me oh he when he said that he was talking to his time i get that but when the holy spirit inspired it you know he had to be talking to you and i as well we literally pay money to store our stuff in other buildings and it's stuff that most of us will never use the rest of our lifetime, but we just can't part with it because of sentimental value or whatever it may be. What would happen if we sold that materialistic gluttonous mound and actually put it to work for the Lord? Will he one day when you and I stand before him say, but Sonny, you remember that building that had all that stuff in it that you just couldn't part part with? Imagine what you could have done with that. When the little boy is lapping up water with a, in a muddy cistern over here. And you imagine what you could have done with that. I'm going to be judged by all that I got and refuse to give up, but never need. And I don't want to stand before the Lord in that kind of condition. Pray for me, because I'm trying to do better. You're aware, surely, that James, in this passage, is no doubt referencing his brother Jesus. When he says, "You have laid up treasure in the last days, I take you back to Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 when Jesus says says, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, etc. There's no doubt in my mind that when James writes these words in our chapter chapter five, he's referencing his brother Jesus, who said, many years earlier probably, Don't be laying up treasures on earth. If you go back, though, to Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter six, excuse me. He concludes that passage, verse 21, by saying this. That's Jesus. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the big point for Jesus. You got stuff. That's where your heart is. Is that stuff treasured to the point that it I just can't let it go. There's no way I could sell that so I could use it for a higher good. I just can't part with it. If you got stuff like that, that's where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. And he says, if that's where your heart is, you're missing the mark. Another haunting passage by the words of our Lord. Few there be that find it. Why is that? Because the gate's narrow and the path is straight. Few there be that find it. I wonder how many of us really are going when we cling so harshly and hard to those things that we don't even use. (laughs) I mean, I'm not even saying that we should give up something that we put into use on a daily basis. I'm just saying, consider the stuff you haven't even thought about using over the last 12 months. Why do we keep it? I do. I'm more guilty than anybody in the room. Cindy knows it. Why in the world do we keep it? Why not invest it in something better, higher? The second phrase that I see in chapter 5 that I think is really awesome, verses 1 through 6, is this idea of fraud. Awesome in the sense that it really haunts me, not awesome in the sense that it's good. Verse 4, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Obviously he's talking about individuals that they employed and didn't take care of their employees. They, they didn't treat them the way they should have. And you and I are probably not very much in that scenario and so let me draw another one. How much responsibility do you and I have towards that little boy who's lapping up water in that muddy pool somewhere in Africa? I've never met him. I don't even know his name. I don't even know when the picture was taken. It may have been taken many years ago. He may be dead and gone. I don't even know. So how much responsibility do I have to that kid? Now, again, I told you, we're all going to go home with sore toes. So let me just put it in this other context. If you got stuff that hadn't seen the light of day in the last 12 months, and you're not likely to ever use it again in your life, but you just can't part with it because of the sentimental value or whatever, and it could be sold and sent, to help folks like that, who, by the way, one of the young men who Cindy and I support named Dennis, you know what the primary part of his ministry as he travels around Kenya? Dig wells so that they can have clean water. If I got stuff that's not likely to ever be used again, that I could be selling and I could take that money and I could actually give it, send it toward somebody who could dig a well so they could have clean water and I don't do it. Do you remember what James said in the last lesson? The guy who doesn't who knows to do good and does not do it, do you remember what he said the conclusion of that is? It's sin. And so nobody's going home today without recognizing that there is something we could do if we're willing to do. But what if we don't do it? He says by fraud. We have fraudulently mistreated those around about us. Maybe that little boy who's lapping up muddy water somewhere in the backwoods of Africa. Then the last thing he says is, you have lived on earth in luxury, verse 5. You've lived on earth in self-indulgence. <clears throat> that one really hits me between the eyes. I'm lazy by nature. I uh, I like to eat when I want to eat, and when I eat, I want to make sure that it tastes good to me, because taste is why I eat. There was a time, and many of you who are older than I remember these times, when you didn't eat for taste, you ate because that's what got you through the day. You needed the energy, but we don't do that anymore today. Generally today, my generation was raised up on heavily sugared cereals and all of those and things that you could microwave in an instant and, and boom. And it's all about time and it's all about taste. Get it quick and make sure it's got a good taste. And so, we see why my generation is suffering with our health, with diabetes, with cancers, and on and on you go with the list. The processed foods that we have eaten because of convenience, the sugar-packed food that we have eaten, et cetera, et cetera. And it all has to do with this idea of self-indulgence. I don't want to wait, and so let's microwave it. I don't want for it to necessarily be good for me. I want it to taste good. And so Cindy puts a healthy salad in front of me every lunch during the week, which is what we try to do. And you know what Sonny does? I cover it heavily in salad dressing. And I ruin the entire thing that Cindy has done for me by covering it in salad dressing because of my self-indulgence. I'm not really interested in the salad, I'm interested in the taste buds and whether or not they're gonna perk up whenever I taste the salad dressing. I am guilty of James 5, 1 through 6. That's Sonny Childs, the self-indulgence guy. And I suspect there's others of you who are guilty as well. So what are we going to do about it? That's the question that I ask. I try very, very hard never to preach a lesson without doing two things. One, ask myself, are you guilty of this? And two, if I find myself guilty of this making sure that in the midst of my presentation that I acknowledge that guilt and offer to the congregation or whoever I'm speaking to a repentance challenged upon myself that I'm going to do better. I don't, and I'm not, I wouldn't be interested in getting into your family affairs and going into your personals and all of that kind of thing. That'd be, I just not interested in going there with you. But what I will do is I will trust you as a brother or sister in Christ to after reading this passage and recognizing the illustrations I've put in for in front of you, I I would ask of you to go home and consider for yourself what you are doing with the self-indulgence of your own lifestyle. This part is really kind of in your face, but it's the way he concludes. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You fattened your hearts in a day of, it's like he's saying, you're that cow that we put out into pasture for one purpose, gain weight, get fat, so that when we go to the market, we get maximum dollars out of you. I don't wanna be that guy. I don't wanna stand before God one day and have to say to him, I was the fat American, fat in the sense of materialistically gluttonous, who didn't care that the rest of the world was hurting, or that we've got missionaries who are working on third, with third-handed equipment, because I'm so spoiled, I had had to invest in stuff that here in America that gave me the cush and it gave me the convenience. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the fellow who one day is able to actually say before the Lord, I sacrificed because you deserve that God and your people deserve that. Let me end in this way. Being that we've already got our toes bludgeoned and I hope that you've accepted my own personal confessions here. Let me just end in this way. If you really think about how much you have in comparison to the rest of the world, And then you ask yourself, how often do you whine, complain, wish for something different, get depressed, get discouraged, feel like, woe is me. If you put those two things side by side, does it make you feel guilty? It does to me, because I I do it often. I'm that guy. And then I, I see pictures of a little boy lapping up dirty brown water in some foreign country when I can go to the faucet and get pure, clean water in an instant. And I I, I asked myself, what will God say to me one day with regards to that? The church in America is materialistically gluttonous. We got too much, most of which sits being unused, for the majority of the week. And if we don't do something quickly in these last days, we will one day soon stand before our God and have to give an answer for our mismanagement of all the advantages he has given to us. Seems like an odd way to end a sermon, but I'm going to quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. He who has great abilities has also got great responsibilities. If you, if you were blessed to be born in America into all of these lavish conditions that we've experienced, it's not because God wanted to curse you, but because God wanted to get you to use the advantages for his advantage. I want to do better. I ask for you to pray for me that I'll do better. I got too much stuff. You?